Last week on Unforgotten. There were some other people that were interviewed that had similar stories. It sounds like he knows what's coming up, whether it's at his own hand or somebody else. I feel like he's purposefully interacting. Not be surprised that the purpose of Langford going to the civilian recreation area was to meet that person. Because if he's over there, why doesn't he just call her when he gets the page? It does seem weird to me that that instead of him getting a page, why doesn't he do what he did every other time that day? But there's a story that at the beginning of the ship, we're told not to go into the southern area. Okay, so nobody's at the station. Oh, my God. The the vehicle was running. The hazard lights were The lanyard loosely tied around both ankles. The cord from the radar unit in the car, loosely tied around his neck. At the time of his transmission, they dispatch everybody because they're looking for suspects. Why are they automatically looking for suspects? Hey everyone, this is Sellers. And this is Stormy. And And this this is is Unforgotten. Unforgotten, where each episode will highlight unsolved missing, murdered, and suspicious death cases in Alabama in order to raise awareness and hopefully obtain some answers for victims and their families. Please remember that any individual referenced in the podcast should be considered innocent until found guilty in a court of law, and any opinions or views expressed in the podcast are solely those of participants. Listener discretion is advised as some of the content discussed in the podcast may contain violence or graphic descriptions and may not be suitable for all audiences. Be sure to join our Unforgotten Patreon channel today to gain exclusive benefits, including early access to ad-free episodes and bonus content. By subscribing, you'll also be supporting the efforts of ACCA in assisting families and raising awareness for Alabama cold cases. Today we're heading into the third of our three-part intriguing conversation with Michael Fleming of Echo 7 Foxtrot and Secrets True Crime regarding the 1992 death of Chad Langford at the Redstone Arsenal Army Base. As we conclude our conversation, we'll review the discovery of Specialist Langford, some of the logistics and forensics of the scene, how his case helped spark change in policy and procedure, as well as a review of many military deaths ruled suicide over that time. If you haven't listened to parts one and two of our conversation, we highly recommend you doing so in order to keep the remainder of this episode in context. And now for the conclusion of episode 18, Specialist Chad Langford. Here's the part that I can't, I'm not able to, to really verify yet. And, and it goes back to describing the scene. In the palm, the left palm of Langford's hand, they found writing where he had yeah. used an ink pen and written on his hand. And it had a date and a name. It was I think Robert it was March 3rd. was the name. I think it's the third. Yeah. Was that when he talked to his dad the last time? What, Ned? You made that connection quick. Yep. Uh, yeah. Who's there is rumor and speculation that the guy they tracked down at Indian Head, who was cooling off after fighting with his wife, was his named name Robert. <gasps> what if that's the corporal? He got in a fight with his wife. Chad called somebody's wife that day. Interesting. I don't think that's the case because they interviewed the corporal at Redstone. Oh, the one, the husband? They had to to track this guy down. You know, once the sergeant major told him who they were looking for, they had to find where he was because he wasn't at Redstone anymore. So I think think that is two separate people. But that's, that's a really weird... That's one of those things that came out in the media um, and, and the, the rumor mill, and it persists to this day, and, you know, here do, we are. Have you seen it in the summary or anything? Like, they haven't listed who it is? They redacted his name. Oh, of course they did. Every name in the 91 pages they sent me is redacted, except for Langford's. They even redacted his 
his dad's name. And I mean, you, you can read what's not redacted and it's obvious this is his dad, you know? Yeah. Roxanne, when they interviewed her, it's obvious that's Roxanne. But but what? Okay, so March 3rd is the last time that he talks to his dad, but why would he write it on there March 12th? Like, what is it about March 3rd that is important? Yeah. Because something on March 3rd triggered him to call his dad freaking out about stuff. I have... I have a conspiracy theory. Is it a three? Yes. <laughs> I actually was wondering if it wasn't March, but it was three, three, and it's something else. That that was intended to be a message, whether true or false, to his dad. Oh, good. Yeah. Letting his dad know. I think his dad would, if his dad heard, well, he wrote March 3rd on his hand. His dad would probably immediately go, wait a minute. That's the last time I talked to him. Last time I talked to him. And he was scared. So this is the person it is. And his name is Robert. Yeah. That's my conspiracy theory for the night. That would make sense. (laughs) Well, and he, well, if he had a meeting or something with this Robert guy, then he would know ahead of time. We don't know what it looks like, but he wasn't dead when they found him. So could it, he have written it down beforehand? No, I would say no. There's a picture of it and all of that stuff. And it's pretty clear. So I'm thinking he wrote it down before as a safeguard. Like beforehand? Yeah, like as a safeguard, if that's what he was doing. Like as he's going to see this stalled vehicle, he's like, mm-hmm. he knows who this is. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I do want to point out that and it may seem obvious to you guys, it may not seem obvious to everyone, it is not uncommon at all, even today. I still do that. If I get a phone call while I'm out in the field doing something, even though I've got notepads all over my car, inevitably I will grab a pen and write something on my hand. Um, My husband comes in from work every day with numbers or something like on his hand because I always give him a hard time about, oh, look at all those phone numbers you got. But it's like all these number things he has to get off the, it's too long to be a phone number. That's how I know he's not lying about it. Um, <laughs> but there's like five or six of them. But it doesn't matter. He's got paper or a phone there that he could like take a picture of it with. He just writes it down on his hand. Yeah, I do. And I know it's, I guess it's an age thing, generational thing. I mean, it's muscle memory for me because, like I said, I literally have notepads all over my car, everywhere, and and ink pens, you know. And I will write a number on my hand instead of grabbing a notepad. It's like that day that we um, went to Silas. I did it then, didn't I? I don't know if you said where his gun was found or if it was found. Yeah, so. The report says it was found under his left shoulder, partially under his left shoulder. There was a lot of contention in the in the media, and there's still discussion about it in places on the Internet. Mm-hmm. And those stem from some of the early news reports that he was found laying on his back. And so the weapon was found underneath you know, his shoulder behind him. So if it was he, under his left shoulder, almost like he maybe fell out of the vehicle. Like if he shot himself, assuming. Wait. Possibly, but we'll we'll get into that. Yeah, in because is he right handed <laughs> or left handed? What hand did he write March? Yeah, right handed. <sighs> and the gun but ends up underneath Okay. All right. So one of the things that um we'll get to the gun then, because I got questions about it. But um the thing about the hat, I'll, so I'm reading through different things, like trying to get ready. So I have some general idea about this. And I came across a Reddit thread. And there was a comment on the Reddit thread that said, how did his bloody cap end up in his mouth? If he had shot himself, he wouldn't have been able to do that. He wouldn't have been able to put it in his mouth afterwards. And my first thought was, well, where was the blood on the hat? Was it? Like, could it have ran down his face onto it? Was it kind of like sticking out of his mouth? Was it all the way in his mouth? So his duty weapon, M1911 45 caliber pistol, was initially found on the ground near the left shoulder of his body. So not necessarily under it, just near it. Right. 
This part is weird if you know anything about firearms. The weapon had been fired twice, had uh, two rounds in the magazine, and one in the well. And it, it had been fired twice. It's five-round magazine. Mm-hmm. So it had two in the magazines, one in the chamber. Mm-hmm. He had shot two. When they found the weapon, the hammer was cocked to the rear. What? It's a semi-automatic pistol. Uh, okay. That doesn't happen. Yeah. Like that's a manual thing. Yeah. Like you, Is there any any scenario you can think of that that could happen if he did it himself? You would have to manually pull the hammer. Mm-hmm. That weapon is just like a modern day nine mil or a Glock yeah. or any other semi. Yeah. As long as oh, you fire a shot and another round enters the chamber, the hammer goes back forward and your next shot is a double action shot. You can manually cock the hammer to the rear for a single action shot. Yeah. But the only time the hammer would not return all the way forward is if you fired a shot and there were no more rounds in your magazine. Okay. And even so, then, it may not happen. I don't think it would even happen then. The slide would run. I can't see anybody having the strength to be able to try to do that. What side of, the, what side of the, his head was he shot yeah. on? Pretty sure it was the left, but let me get there. <gasps> That's not even the right side. Because if it wasn't the left, then there's even more discrepancy. Right? He's right-handed, so it wouldn't be on the left side. But the gun was found near his left shoulder, right? Well, if he fell right. out of the car or, like, but was okay. he parallel with the car? Yeah. So, like, could he, he have fallen out? out of the door? Was he Was he in the car? When no. It was, I mean, no, he was on the ground outside there... the car. Passing the driver. No, I mean, I mean, is there blood in the? It just oh. it, is it obvious that he shot himself in the car, Good or question. was he outside of the car? Um, so because we haven't said that yet, there there was no blood evidence indicated inside the car. There okay. was a single shell casing found in the car, and the second shell casing was found outside of the car, like fifty feet away from where he was. What? All right, the <laughs> gunshot wound entrance located on the right side of Langford's forehead. So, okay, so that does make sense because he was, so he was laying to the parallel with his head towards the rear of the car. Okay. There was blood spatter on, on the car. On the car? Like the outside of the car, not the inside of the car? The outside of the car. Here's where that makes not a lot of sense. Uh-huh. <laughs> so the He'd have to be sitting with with his back against the car. Well, I mean, if he if he did that, then and he's shooting he wouldn't have right that way. left, then it would have been I guess that's possible, but then he would fall over. Okay, that makes sense. He'd fall over and be on his left shoulder. That's what I was... So if he's sitting, like, legs out in front of him, like his car's on the side of the road, he's sitting with his back against it on the driver's side, in the on the right side, that would presumably push him over onto the left side. And then his back would... Yeah. He would have his or, back to the car. But here's the question on that. How how were his legs? Did it look like he'd been sitting up and he just fell over? Or were they, like, straight out beside him? They were tied up. But this is what makes me think, like, it could possibly... Looking at it from the suicide angle, were his legs, like, out in front of him or, like, up in, like, a fetal-type position? Because that would explain how he got the stuff wrapped around his legs. Like, around his ankles. Because he would need to put, like, if he was doing all that beforehand, it wouldn't really make sense for him to be sitting against. He couldn't put his legs out, like, long ways. If he's laying completely parallel with his feet towards the front of the car, that would be a little bit harder to do. Yeah. There was what appeared to be a pool of blood covering a two-by-five-foot area located near the left rear tire of the sedan. In addition to the main pool, there were several blood spots scattered over a large area on the ground. There also appeared to be blood splatter on the left rear quarter panel of the MP sedan, 
There were various items of MP gear and equipment scattered about, but contained within an area approximately the length of the MP sedan. I want to know what the large area is. Is it something like, well, you'd think, okay, there's blood spots, but like they don't say drags, like somebody drug him over there or Mm -hmm. he crawled over there or anything like that. Yeah, are they smears? Are they drags? Are they little puddles? Are they splats? I mean, there's all kinds of blood spatter. Having having answered these kinds of 911 calls, my first impression of that is that they probably weren't spots of random blood laying around. They're probably brain matter. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was was kind of thinking the same thing. It tends to go everywhere. So we got two shots. I mean, unless if he did it himself, then why, why is there one in the car? That's weird. Yeah. And part of the thought that comes out in the media is that the one in the car was, was ejected when he shot himself, basically, because he's in close proximity to the car. The door is open. He fires a shot. And be coming from the right side. Um, so you would expect it to, it could flip back in the car. The problem with that is, so go back to picturing how you set up this scene, all right? If he's... It would hit his arm. If he's leaning against the car, Mm -hmm. all right, the driver's side door is open to his right. The trunk of the the car is to his left. Mm -hmm. He's right-handed. He puts a forty-five to his right temple and pulls the trigger. And, And this theory is that the... The spent casing is ejected from the, after he fires, is ejected from the pistol, and it ends up inside the vehicle. The problem is, what side of a pistol is the ejection port? The on opposite. The right yeah. Side. I would say it's on the opposite side. I was having to think about it. It goes the opposite way from your body. It would have ejected away from the car. Yeah, and yeah. two, the oh, Turkey said have his hand sideways. Mm-hmm. Well, I was thinking, okay, they said that back by the fender wheel is where the bud was. So, like, would he have even been sitting up far enough for it to go in the right side? I mean, in the door. It sounds like he would have had to been more positioned if the front door is open, then he's got to be sitting kind of towards the passenger door. Because he can't lean against the yeah, car on the like driver's side. against either the passenger or the pa- the panel. I mean, like in the it. back, the back driver. Yeah, mm-hmm. like on the back drivers because the the driver's side door is open. So you would think if he's sitting there between the door, the open door and the car, you would think there'd been blood inside the car too. And if there's not blood inside the car, then it makes me think he's sitting back against the back driver's door mm-hmm. or that back end i don't know how tall he was either that would probably help too knowing if he if that is how he he was positioned when this happened and he fell over would that have put him in the proximity he needed to be in well i'm going to give you some more data to further confuse you oh god an analysis of the bloodstain pattern found at the crime scene revealed a point of origin from the exit wound over the center of the large blood stain at a height not greater than 18 inches. 18 huh? inches from the... From the ground. <laughs> Wait, say that again, just so I hear, hear it all again. <laughs> An analysis of the blood stain pattern found at the crime scene revealed a point of origin from the exit wound over the center of the large blood stain at a height of not greater than 18 inches. This is consistent with the victim being in a sitting or partially reclining position facing approximately west. A second point of origin was determined from an analysis of the blood stains on the vehicle. This point of origin was determined to be at a height not greater than 39 inches. This is consistent with back spatter from the entrance wound. So point of origin, meaning that's where the blood came from? Because I'm really confused how you have point of origin from the exit wound. Where the blood came from. That, okay, that 
Like, yeah. it's mean like where was yeah. So what what they're saying is the blood pattern from the exit wound uh-huh. says that the shot or that the exit wound could not have been more than eighteen inches off the ground. Does that mean the blood on the vehicle? They're calling back spatter, which indicates not greater than 39 inches above the ground. The trajectory of the round through his skull had an upward angle. So how do you go? How do you get back spatter higher than your, right? Yeah. That would have been a downward trajectory, right? That that is that's some inconsistency there to me, and and it gets worse. <laughs> so you may or may not know, but back spatter is usually and almost always associated with a close proximity shot, definitely a contact shot. Any any appreciable distance between the muzzle and the target you get less to no back spatter because the back spatter is caused by the hot gases going into the wound. Okay. So if you shoot somebody from a distance or you shoot them in a very flexible and soft spot like the stomach, you don't get back spatter because those gases have a place to expand. You do it in the skull, they got nowhere to go except under the, under the scalp and, and that stuff blows back out. The autopsy did show that this was a close contact shot. There were all of the signs, powder burning, stippling, ash, everything that that you would look for in a contact shot. But more importantly was the muzzle stamp. That happens with a semi-automatic because, you know, the the mechanism is moving to ready the weapon for another shot. Mm -hmm. So the slide moves forward. There's, There's movement of the muzzle. And if you're holding it in close contact with the skin, it's basically, you know, like a hammer against your skin. It leaves an imprint of the muzzle. In the case of the M1911, the 45 pistol that he had, the slide spring also comes out a little bit during that movement. And it also left an impression. So this pistol was pressed tightly to his skull when the trigger was pulled. And that's not, that doesn't really happen, right? In, in suicides, because there's not necessarily a hesitation, but it, like, it tends to kind of come off before it goes back, right? I, I would say in a lot of cases, there is evidence that back spatter does not always happen. I think it's roughly the, the last analysis I remember reading was like 23% of semi-automatic pistols given those circumstances, did not create back spatter. But, I mean, here we have them talking about back spatter mm-hmm. on the vehicle. And back, back spatter is very different from what you see from the exit wound. The, yeah. you know, the pattern mm-hmm. is completely different. Back spatter, you're looking at very fine part of particulate, you know, basically aerosolized blood and, yeah. and stuff like, like that. Like a spray almost. I would say anybody that's sat, even looked at pictures could probably tell you the difference between the two. So they're calling this back spatter that's on the vehicle. When the weapon was analyzed, they found no blood evidence on the weapon. What? What? I'll do you one better. And this (laughs) will put to rest one of the rumor points of contention from the media and everything else. They did do gunshot residue testing, right? His hands were were not covered in paper or plastic when they left the scene in the ambulance. I think the reasoning there is obvious. He was still alive. Oh, true. That was the priority. As soon as he was pronounced, the senior enlisted military police officer from Redstone, the sergeant major, bagged his hands, paper bags. The protocol now is plastic, but he did secure his hands in paper bags. Within 
hours, CID showed up at the morgue. Once he was pronounced, they transported him from Huntsville Hospital back to the base hospital, Fox Army Hospital, and he was put in the morgue on base. So CID shows up, and I think this may be even on the timeline. Yeah, it is. So 11.05, CID shows up at the morgue, removes those bags, and does GSR sampling to check for gunshot residue on his hands. The laboratory report came, uh, well, it's dated 21 May of 92. It says gunshot residue. Now, the rumor out there is that they that GSR was inconclusive, that they couldn't prove from GSR testing that he fired his weapon. Well, that's... Eh, that's the case all the time, mm-hmm. not just with this. You can get GSR from anything. And that's why they don't do it a lot, right? Because it, you can pick it up from, it's not just necessarily, the other things can test positive for gunshot residue, right? Yeah, and, and that's why the FBI has now put out, and DOJ has put out guidance to all police departments on how to properly do the samples and how to, like like what I talked about with the bagging of the hands. Mm-hmm. If you can't bag their hands on the scene, that's bad. Like the protocol is you bag the hands on the scene because tests have shown that you can pick any random police car off the street and do GSR swabs in the back seat, and they'll be positive. Yeah. Which means that anybody that you arrest under suspicion of having fired a gun and you don't bag their hands, but you cuff them and put them in the back of your car. And when you get to the station, you do GSR testing and it comes back positive. Yeah. You didn't prove anything other than they sat in the back of your car. Yeah. So the FBI has since all of this has put out a lot of guidance on that. But in this case, I think they did absolutely what, what they needed to do. I would never want to interrupt or delay medical treatment. Mm-hmm you know, to bag somebody's hands. Yeah. So they bagged them when they should have, when it was reasonable. And it wasn't very long before they did, you know, the, the collection when CID showed up at the morgue. Yeah. Here's the problem I have with it, though, and I'm going to read you what the report says. Gunshot residue was found on the swabbings obtained from the right palm, left back, and left palm of Langford's hands. What's wrong with that? Okay, the right palm, the left palm, yep. and the left back? Yep. Why would it the be on hand. his left hand, period? but Well, now the left hand, I understand that. That's fine. Why would it be it, on the outside of his right hand? Why would it be the palm? Bingo. If he's holding the weapon with his right hand, there should mm-hmm. be nothing on his palm. That's like if he, well, he obviously didn't put his hand up to stop him because it he did get shot in the head but like it's almost like he's fighting with somebody for the gun or his right hand was laying on the surface palm up when someone else shot him yeah that makes zero sense to me if it had been on the right back and not his right palm i'd say mm, maybe he was holding his gun there's a good chance he was holding his gun. But when you combine that with there was no blood on the weapon, but you've got back spatter on the car, impossible. I will put a stake in the ground well, the, on that. And there's markings. You said there were markings on his head from the gun yeah. being held tightly. How do you not have blood held that close? Now go back. To what I told you about the hammer position. Mm-hmm. If somebody I, somebody has to do that manually. And and one of the questions that, that I would like to be able to ask, because it, it isn't in the report. So the report says that they confirm that the 10 rounds, he had two magazines, 10 rounds of ammo he was issued at the beginning of his shift were all the same lot number. And all of the rounds found on the scene, either unspent or the ejected cartridges, were from that lot number. What we don't know is who else was on shift 
that was issued ammo from that lot number. But regardless of that, is it possible that someone took his ammunition and fired it from their weapon, Mm. ejected the magazine and put it back in his weapon? So here's another thing that I've written. I don't think, I don't know if you have the, um, the answer for it or not, but something that I read said that there were prints obtained from the gun and they did not match Chad's. And I've, I've read that myself. There is absolutely nothing in these 91 pages about prints on the weapon. And why wouldn't there be? They give you all of these details about the back splatter and how high the wound, like the point of origin is and all the different blood, all of this stuff and that there's GSR on his hands, but they don't talk about whether there were prints on the gun. It's weird. Makes no sense to me. It is weird. Go ahead, Dormy. <laughs> I was just trying to trying to figure out how the gun residue would have got on of so if they were trying to stage you know that he was holding the gun so they they shot him then put the gun in his hand like seems like they always do in the movies i don't know if that's really true (laughs) but they put the gun in his hand so it's like it falls into a place that would naturally fall from his hand after he shot himself or something so then residue might be on the palm of his hand and that you know that's one of the one of the unfortunate pieces of this that that I chalk up to a mistake, um, yeah. because there's nothing in here, nothing in the report about doing GSR testing of his clothing. Mm. And while, you know, if he shot himself or somebody else shot him with a close contact shot, his clothing is going to be covered in it. Mm-hmm. However, there would be. There, it's likely that there would be different concentrations of GSR in different places on his clothing that could paint more of a picture. And that was proven by one of those other 40 cases that had to be reopened. And that's why they overturned the manner of death in that case was because the forensic examiner that did the second investigation he had access to the clothing and they did GSR testing on the clothing and were able to show that he could not have shot himself in this way. The only way for, for the concentration of GSR to be where it is, there's GSR over everything he was wearing, but it's concentrated here and here and here. And the only way that happens is if someone else is holding the weapon when they fired it. So wouldn't also, if the door was open, wouldn't there have also been gunshot residue on the outside of the car? There should have been. From what's in this report, other than this blood spatter thing on the car, they did nothing. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like nothing. They didn't. I mean, there's nothing in here about fingerprinting the car. They pulled some fibers. They used tape and pulled some fibers off the door handle. They pulled some fibers from another location. There was also an unidentified white substance on the trigger guard of his weapon. And apparently they never figured out what that was. I don't understand that at all because everyone's got GCMS. So just there was a white substance and they just didn't even bother to really look. Yeah. Uh, I don't think you ever answered. Where was the casing in the car found? Or did they say? And I got sidetracked on the other stuff. (laughs) Be aware that they never found the bullets from the two shots that were fired. They never recovered those. Oh. So that's extremely not. So one, though, was like really far away. The casing. Right. The casing was like really far away. 50 feet, I think he said. So then maybe probably wouldn't find the bullet, huh? Because what were they aiming at? Did it hit anything? How far did it actually go? still doesn't make sense to me. It would be 50 feet away. 
unless he ran like, 50 feet uh, away he, and fired it and then went back to the car. But if you think about like ridiculous, I think if he was going to do that, he would do it right there at the car because that's where here goes that here's that time frame again. He's got to get from the rec center down to neatly place his stuff. 50 feet away to go fire off the first shot, park his car, get himself tied up, all this stuff set up and then fire off the second shot. All in this very, because the call comes in at 1807, right? He makes the call at 1800, or has the call with the girlfriend, and then at 1807, he's radioing in 2007. So, it's a very short seven minutes, right? And that, the whole, is. am I thinking about the right phone call? Yeah. So, he could have set up everything except for... The last couple of things he had to do prior to calling, but still, that's seven minutes. Remember this because they see. Okay, so they see him driving the patrol vehicle at nineteen forty-five. Fifteen minutes later, she sends a page to him, and he makes the phone call from the payphone. Then seven minutes later, he's found the stalled vehicle that he's radioing in. Mm-hmm. Then at twenty ten. Four minutes later, is my math right? Three minutes later. Three minutes later. <laughs> um, all hands on deck. They're sending everybody to the south to look for him. That's my approximation on that time. Because like oh, yeah. I, when I explained it, I'm thinking, you know, they're, prob- they're, they're a little relaxed. Um, probably not immediately concerned that he's not answering the radio. Three minutes seems like the, the maximum amount. For me personally, that and we know it's before 2015 because that's when they call in the off-duty officer. Yeah. Now another thing to bring up there, though, and I'm sure you've read this, that after he called in that I'm, I'm investigating a stalled vehicle, that there was a second communication that was a garbled communication. Oh nope, I didn't see that. You haven't read that. Mm-mm. That came out in the hunt times so i don't know where yeah there was it was in the um, unsolved mysteries too the way that they told the story the after the unsolved mysteries episode aired um, they went back and re-interviewed the radio operator and he emphatically denied there was no garbled transmission there was none of that he just didn't answer the radio and that's when we put things into action to try and find him and then when they found him, chaos ensued. But the garble transmission would have sounded like something that would have triggered that really strong action to getting everybody out there. Like, you know, something now not only is he not answering, but there's been something that's like not right about him radioing back in. Because it's weird to me that there wouldn't be anything other than I'm checking out this stalled car and all of a sudden you're sending everybody out. That seems like an overreaction because when you call for backup, they normally send like one car. Hey, can you go down and check him out? Make sure he's good on this car. Yeah. Uh, Something else that I I should probably explain that might help make a little bit more sense of that tight timeline that you're talking about. When they found him and they found the vehicle, vehicles running, hazard lights on, doors open. The part I forgot to mention is the microphone for the vehicle radio was hanging out of the driver's side door. So he, it's possible that when he said, I'm stopping a stalled vehicle, as soon as he released the microphone is when this happened. Hmm. As far as the garble transmission, having been in that environment in the same time frame, you know, Ambulance, police car, same difference as far as communications go back then. You would be much more likely to get a garbled, unintelligible communication from a radio if it's a portable unit. The radio mounted in the vehicle that's running off of the vehicle power has a heck of a lot more power. And 
in my experience, it was very rare. The only time that I would get a garbled transmission from a vehicle radio was if they were barely in range of the tower. So in Montgomery, we had one tower that all of our radios were repeating off of. And the first place that I frequently would have garbled transmissions from a radio mounted in an ambulance was Tuskegee off of one tower. But you could be 10 blocks away from our base station talking on a portable, and I may not have a clue what you said, depending on how old and how well charged that battery was. So I'm thinking, like you are with this compressed time frame, he's already staged his portable radio and all that stuff in the intersection and driven down to where the stalled vehicle was supposed to be mm-hmm. he doesn't have his portable anymore so okay so here's another thing though so they pulled over the guy whoever it was maybe robert uh yeah maybe robert <laughs> which we don't know for sure but if he was going west on the bucks Buxton, Buxton. Near Pier- so he's like literally right there where all this happens right yeah but he would have likely come down Patton, wouldn't he? I mean, I think he would have had re- reasonably thinking that would, given the area, yeah. I would think he came down Patton and went out Buxton. Let me go back in my which means he went right by all that stuff. Yeah, and uh, so he was westbound on Buxton mm-hmm. near Pershing, mm-hmm. and he said he came from his job, so he worked. Where he claimed he was coming from was Western Auto. So, depending on where that is, he either came in gate three, and I don't even think he could. Because they closed them after a certain time, right? At 1800, it that is an outbound only gate. There's really only one gate that he could have come through, I think coming into the base and that's the the main gate of where the visitor station is so yeah i mean you you'd be right on he he would have had to come down Patton. literally cross yeah you've got every military police officer assuming they've got their lights and everything on out there and he doesn't know anything's going on yeah Here's you another wrinkle because you guys have seen it on the map. So there's obvious there's all these intersecting gravel roads that are access roads for the bunkers all over that area. There's nothing in this report, which I feel like it 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 would be worth mentioning, but there's nothing in the report talking about searching. All of those little access roads for anybody out there that did not belong. It's basically like, you know, they found him. He's still alive. Put him in an ambulance. Get him out of here. Sergeant, you pissed me off by not going to the station like I told you to. So you sit here and make sure that the crime scene is secured and everybody else go back to your duties. Even though they were supposedly looking for a suspect. I mean, that's the perfect part of the base to hide on. All right, let's get back to the shell casing. Yeah. yeah. All right. <laughs> An expended 45 caliber shell casing was recovered from the roadway, which came to rest approximately 51 feet and two inches in a northeastern direction from street pole number 54. That's helpful. Um, okay. They found a legal, legal-sized notepad um, in his briefcase that was located on the right rear seat of the sedan. An expended 45 caliber shell casing was recovered from the driver's seat cushion of the MP sedan. Driver's seat cushion. So if he was... So that's even more bizarre because, one, we've already said it can't go out that way. It can't eject that way. If it even could fly that direction, it would have had to have bounced off the door and gone into the car. And and that's where I'm I'm feeling like he was parallel to the vehicle rather than perpendicular. Well, see, I thought that's what 
what you had said was he what I'm thinking as far as perpendicular is like he's got his knees up but he falls sideways which would make him parallel with the car but if his if his body is like straight out and his feet are also pointed towards the front that doesn't make a lot of sense yeah Mm -mm. unless no because there wouldn't be the if it was facing the i mean i guess if he was like facing no that wouldn't put him on the left side I can't think of any other way for him to be facing so the shell would eject into the car because then he would have fell on it. He would either got caught on the door and wouldn't have fell over and the blood would have been going the opposite way if he was facing it so that the shell would eject into the car. Was it somebody right? on the grassy knoll? <laughs> well, I mean, and and I really think that once... Once this case got out of the hands of the initial investigator, you know, when Congress got involved and and a bunch of waves started getting made and other investigators started looking at this, I have to think that this is, these are the discussions that they were having that resulted in them saying, you know what, change the manner of death because there's absolutely no way you can say definitively. Yeah. And they changed it to undetermined, right? They changed it to undetermined. The kicker is so he died in Madison County off base, pronounced dead at a hospital. Madison County coroner is responsible for the death certificate. On the death certificate, it was undetermined. That was done before the Army had made their decision that it was... Really? Coroner said it was undetermined. (laughs) The Army comes back however long later and says, Hey, Coroner, we need you to change this death certificate because we finished our investigation and this was a suicide. The Coroner said, No. (gasps) Refused to change the death certificate. Wow. Wow. (laughs) I think that's the second time we've done that. (laughs) Yeah. That's nuts. Good for him. And, and he gave an explanation that, you know, you're not giving me what I would need to justify changing that determination. I made that determination yep. based on the autopsy Science. and the forensic evidence available. Mm-hmm. And now you're coming at me with a psychological autopsy. When you guys see this report, you'll see what I'm talking about. All these investigator comments. It's, I mean, a lot of it makes perfect sense, but it's, it's the same thing we're doing. It's speculation. Yeah. And well, it's almost like the psychological autopsy was needed to justify the suicide ruling. And that's actually what Langford's dad, what his position is and, and was back then that they did that psychological autopsy to justify the decision that that they had already made they needed to and this was kind of why we went through all of that at the beginning because to show everything was fine yes there was this noticeable change yes there are plenty of reasons why it could be suicide but there are also plenty of reasons why it isn't if just listening to everything that you've just told us like that is so questionable and when you have somebody when they've come out now and they've said it oh it's a suicide i don't i didn't even know that psychological autopsies were a thing until this and that's like going back in time and asking people asking forming your opinion based on what other people thought about him you're getting hearsay. Um, yeah, sure, maybe there are some records, but if he hadn't gone to see a psychiatrist or a counselor or anything like that to have anything or just his general physician to have in his medical records that he was dealing with all of these different things that you've now gotten from other people, how do you make a legitimate summary or evaluation? Can you do yeah. that with 
absolute medical certainty, not having anything other than hearsay. And I mean, that that's the thing that, and we know it because of what we do every day. Mm-hmm. If you tried to present that as evidence in a court, you'd get laughed out. Fly. You would get yeah. laughed out of there. So on, on the psychological autopsy, one, one of the things that uh, I'll point out that we haven't gotten to yet, but I think that one of the premises that they were, the foundation that they were going for with the result of that psychological autopsy was based on something that was said in one of the interviews by someone that Langford had served in Korea with. They told the investigator a story about him getting very depressed at one point while they were in Korea. And he took an entire bottle of Tylenol and had to go to medical to be treated for overdosing on Tylenol, which is, is a thing. I mean, mm-hmm. it's very serious. Um, that can definitely shut your liver down in a bad way. Oh, yeah. That they, yep. They definitely and, tell you, be careful of that. Yeah. So, so this, this um, soldier, who was with Langford in Korea told them about this happening and they ran with it. Mm. And one of the follow-up investigations is when they did some more of that coordination and they had a CID resident agent from camp Casey contact Langford's commanding officer when he was there. And they asked him, you know, how well did you know him? You know, do you remember him? This, that, and the other. Do you remember him having to go to medical for overdosing on Tylenol? And his commanding officer was like, I've never heard of that. I don't remember that at all. And then he comes back a little bit later and says, hey, you asked me that question. I didn't know. So I called his first sergeant. First sergeant doesn't know anything about that either. They pulled his medical records. Nothing in his medical record about that ever happening. Really? Yep. Well, so who got So to- where did that come from? It came from one of those people that was stationed with him in Korea and then moved to Redstone when he was at Redstone. Was it the female? It was a female. The hat. Over oh. and over again in the media. I know. I think I've wrote hat on my notes about four times now. Bloody hat. <laughs> okay, we're going to talk about the hat. <laughs> Bloody hat in his mouth. All right. The hat was in his mouth. Don't know anything more than that, except that it's never described in the report as a bloody hat. So when they, after they transported him, all right, obviously they're they're doing first aid, you know, because he's still alive. They took the hat out of his mouth to, you know, to mm-hmm. treat him. Mm-hmm. And that's a very hectic situation, you know. They're ripping his clothes off. They're, you know, trying to assess him. And, you know, you pull the hat out, you toss it. When you get to the evidence collection section and they talk about where they recovered all of this, they recovered the hat. From the large pool of blood. Oh, they said so they just like when they were trying to render first aid, they just kind of tossed it, not really paying attention. Tossed it, not thinking about it. When they collected it, what's the evidence bag probably say? One bloody hat. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, so. Yeah. And, and when you play the telephone game and it finally ends up the news media, they pulled a bloody hat out of his mouth. Yeah. So I think that one's pretty easy to explain. Well, within a year, year and a half, there there was a lot of activity that didn't really focus just on Chad's death, but it seems like Chad's death was the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back with a string of suicides by active duty military personnel where the family members did not believe that that was an accurate manner of death for their loved one. It ended up getting congressional attention. Like I said, it wasn't solely based on Chad's death, but Chad's death really spearheaded a lot of deep investigating and looking at policy and procedures 
within the military services um, to try and make sure that deaths weren't being called suicide on a whim. Do you know, and before we get into all of the details for him, do you know how the uh, any of the others turned out as far as that deeper look into what was going on? I don't know exactly on a lot of them. There were quite a few that were Marines, which was the branch of service that I served in. And I do know that at least one of those was characterized as a suicide. And after Congress intervened and and had their own investigations done and, and stuff like that, in that case, an independent forensic investigation was performed by someone who does that for a living but was not affiliated with CID or the military. And his report to Congress ultimately resulted in that manner of death being overturned, and it, it was changed from suicide to undetermined. And I believe that that was the same case with a number of those cases. So they didn't necessarily get changed to homicide, but they did shift from being suicide to undetermined. So it was with good reason that they kind of went back to review these. Correct. And I do believe that some of them did result in people being charged and or convicted ultimately, but I'd have to go back through the list. It started out with like 14 families and quickly, like within six months, grew to 40 families. I remember seeing that on the newspaper's um, headlines when I was looking at this, and that just blew my mind. That's a lot of people. Yeah. And it was actually, I, I would say that it was more than 40 because when Congress passed the Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 1994, one of the stipulations that was included in there was that any family that had a loved one who had died and it had been determined through investigation to be a suicide, if those family members did not agree with it and they contacted the secretary of the military branch in question, Congress directed that service to reopen the investigation. That almost sounds like that federal act or bill that they just signed into law last year for the homicide victims where you can request a review, but obviously you don't get to go as high up when you do that request. Because, you know, we've talked about it before that sometimes families might not necessarily want to accept what the outcome is. So it makes it a little bit harder for them to really believe that maybe one of their loved ones did actually commit suicide. But then you have families that they're just, they know without a doubt that something's not right. But when they're being blown off and they feel like people aren't taking them serious, this is a good backup for them to be able to go to somebody that will say, hey, we'll, we'll take you serious what you got. The investigation into Chad's untimely demise has left us with more questions than answers. After more than seven hours of discussion, the truth is still cloaked in uncertainty. Enough uncertainty that Chad's manner of death was later changed to undetermined. What we do know is that Chad's seemingly ordinary task of investigating a stalled vehicle quickly descended into a harrowing ordeal, transforming him from an inquisitive military police officer to a helpless victim, bound, gagged, and shot, all within 15 minutes or less. Astonishingly, the initial conclusion reached by the Army CID pointed towards suicide, a hypothesis that seemed plausible when considering the surface-level details. However, the deeper we delve into the evidence and the scientific analysis, the more doubts emerge. If you have any information related to the death of Specialist Chad Langford, please contact Army CID Redstone Arsenal Resident Unit at 256-876-7592 or 256-876-2037. You can submit an anonymous tip on the CID's P3 Tips website, which will be linked in the episode description. You can also contact Echo 7 Foxtrot's confidential tip line via phone or text message at 205 282 0740 or by email at tips 
at echo7foxtrot.com. Since Alabama Cold Case Advocacy's creation, we have dedicated innumerable hours to researching and networking in an effort to provide the largest platform we can to the cases we share. We shoulder all associated expenses with Alabama Cold Case Advocacy out of our own pocket, including the subscription fees for researching and production of the Unforgotten podcast to provide a cost-free avenue for the victims' families of those cases. We hope you will join in our efforts to raise awareness of Alabama's missing and murdered and support these families who have been forced to carry the immeasurable loss of their loved ones and the fight for answers. If you appreciate our mission and you are inspired to make a donation, your extra support will enable the ACCA to continue our research, share the cold cases, and help those families know that they are also unforgotten. Unforgotten is an Alabama cold case advocacy podcast recorded in conjunction with Riverside FM, hosted and distributed by Spotify for podcasters, available on your favorite podcast platform. Intro music for the show was created by Principles of Uncertainty, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Content and production is by Sellers and Stormy. Artwork by Sellers. Credits for music, sound clips, special mentions, and any source referenced in our podcast can be found in each episode's description. We hope you will join us on all the major social media sites and continue to raise awareness of our Alabama cold cases. Until next time, thank you for listening, and remember, justice may be delayed, but the victims and their families remain unforgotten.